the comments made already today have certainly been very encouraging and uplifting to remind us about our place at this location this morning, the blessing that God has showered upon us that permits us in health and with the perfectness of mind to come to an occasion like this one in which we can express our adoration for the God who made us and certainly worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is good to see each and every person here today, and we hope that for those who aren't able to be with us, that things for them very soon will be far better, so that they soon can be back where they no doubt would very much like to be this morning. The title of the lesson today, as you can see on the wall behind me, has to do with fundamentals. This calendar year, it is my plan that once each month, we will devote a lesson to some of the basic elements of the faith. That is to say, some of the most foundational, some of the most fundamental, some of the most basic elements of what it is the case to be a person of faith. Today, we're going to look at the existence of God. I suppose it would be fair to say that the existence of God is arguably the single most fundamental matter that you and I can discuss. After all, we are convinced of that because we've assembled today. We believe God exists, but we all know that there are many in our world who do not think that there's a God. They, in fact, look upon what you and I would claim as sufficient evidence and say that is not adequate. What about the existence of God? On what basis can you and I thus affirm, I know that there's a God. I know that He exists. For the next few moments this morning, let's look at a few things that will lead us to some interesting considerations relative to that. You may notice that near the bottom of that slide, I at least point out this, is a matter of profound significance. We shall see some of the consequences of that shortly. But I did want us to begin the lesson like this. The existence of God falls in a category that might be stated like this. There are only two possibilities. Either God does exist or He does not. Logically, there's no other possibility. And so oftentimes there are those in our world who like to fit themselves into another category. Frankly, there is no strong consideration for another. Now as far as the existence of God, I have at least pointed out a few groups that sometimes are used to describe those who have some feeling about the existence of God. You and I are a theist. Now that comes from an ancient word theos, which refers to God, a believer in God. You and I believe strongly that there is a God, that He does exist. But there are those who are atheists. You simply put the prefix a in front of theos. That was the ancient way to negate something. So that would be like today, you and I sometimes use the word UN or IN to in fact turn something into its opposite. Well, they would just put an A in front of it. So an atheist is one who does not believe in God, who does not believe that God exists. Now there are two additional categories, and you may on occasion find individuals who categorize themselves as one or the other of these. There are those who call themselves agnostics. These people simply claim that there's not sufficient evidence to reach a conclusion. In other words, they say, I simply am not going to say whether there is or is not a God. There isn't enough evidence to lead me to say 
Well, quite frankly, they're ignoring the evidence. The final category is a skeptic. This kind of person just rides the fence. This kind of person doubts the existence of God, but doubts that it can be proven adequately. Well, as you give thought to at least those categories of people, let's in fact journey toward the conclusion to that slide and say this. The existence of God is the single greatest element in knowledge that there is. Because if God exists, that determines everything. It determines one's morality. It determines one's outlook on eternity. It determines one's perspective on his life and that of others. It determines one's worldview. It determines the outlook that one would have upon a whole host of things like one's work, the church, even one's politics. You see, if God exists, that determines so much of everything else. You can perhaps begin to see why no doubt some over the ages have been motivated to try to, con to convince themselves there is no God because if there is no God, they're free to be their own God. They're free to dictate and do what they like without any consequences either in this life or perhaps others. The existence of God is basic. You're probably well aware that there's a number of controversies connected to the existence of God. There have been debates over the years. I wanted to share with you just a couple of quotes. I suppose you and I might take these as insulting to us, but I hope you'll also recognize in them how strongly some atheists can be. Ernest Hemingway, a well-known literary person of the early part of the 1900s, said this, All thinking men are atheists. So in other words, there was a gentleman who quite frankly pointed out, if you're a believer in God, you don't really think very much, do you? You just do what somebody tells you, or you follow what maybe has been the case for your ancestors or others, but you don't look at the evidence rationally. Easy to see in that a bit of an insult, isn't it? A modern-day astrophysicist, a rather well-known scientist, quite frankly, he has a number of programs on the computer, programs available on news services. So you probably have heard of the name Neil deGrasse Tyson. He put it like this, God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. It's pretty clear where these two fellows stand, isn't it? No wonder then in light of what can sometimes be the case, there are those in society who are convinced that there's no God and they try to force their views on others such as you and me. Why don't we look today at the existence of God? We've heard what men may say about it. We've even listed a few categories in which folks may place themselves. But what would be some lines of consideration, evidence if you will, that would lead one to reach a clear conclusion on whether or not God exists? This lesson could be an extremely lengthy one. I've only selected about three. The first one that I would invite you to consider with me is this one. Arguably, the most basic consideration, the most basic law that governs all of the sciences, that in fact is a natural part of your everyday life and mine, is what might be called the law of cause and effect. 
the law of cause and effect. Now, you may not often refer to it by that name, but the idea, the principle that goes behind it is this straightforward. Every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. If something happens, it had to be caused by something. Things just don't happen without cause. They just don't happen without sufficient cause. You and I would be quick to say, if a book falls off a table, it didn't fall off because a fly landed on it. There had to be some sufficient cause that made that take place. A car doesn't just run off the road because a .5 mile an hour wind caused it to do so. That isn't sufficient. Needless to say, every avenue in science, be it chemistry, physics, oceanography, meteorology, biology, or any other, has an understanding of the place of the law of cause and effect. And everything that's studied experimentally in a laboratory operates on the premise of the law of cause and effect. This particular set of circumstances will produce this effect every time that those circumstances are in place this way. Repeatability, understandability, and consistency. The law of cause and effect. It is with that in mind, look at some of these things. Would you agree with me that as you and I look at what takes place around us and as we consider the universe at large, that is a very clear effect. This universe is remarkable. It's amazing. It's fascinating. It's orderly. Would you say that it is an effect? If so, it must, may I say must, have an adequate cause that preceded it. It could not have happened without a sufficient cause. Now, you'll notice about the middle of that slide, I'm going to invite you to at least look at the universe from a, a general perspective for the next couple of moments. In the history of science, one of the presentations and one of the approaches that was at least made in order to get around this issue was this. Suppose the universe were eternal. Suppose it never had a beginning, and it'll never have an end. Then if that were true, you wouldn't need to try and justify the way it began, for it never had a beginning. It's just always been here. There was a long period of time in which scientists felt comfortable making that claim. On that slide, I've asked you to note this. There are only three possibilities as you look at the universe. Either it's eternal... If it's not eternal, then maybe one can consider it created itself. But if it didn't, the only third possibility is it was created by someone outside of it and greater than it. That's the only three logical possibilities. Again, either it's eternal, it created itself, or something anterior to it created it. Let's look at them one at a time. Is the universe eternal? Even science now won't say that. Astronomers in particular, as you look at the motion of the galaxies and the stars, it is now evident the universe is not eternal. That means it had to have a beginning. 
So that eliminates one of the possibilities. Next possibility, could it possibly be the universe created itself? That's nonsense. The fundamental law of physics says matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. So that eliminates possibility number two. That just leaves one. The universe had to be created by someone greater than it. Who was it? Who is it? I understand well that some of the modern presentations of science will give recourse to a big bang or recourse to some other initial incident kind of explosion. We'll have more to say about that in a moment. But among the three possibilities, we now have reached logically this one. The universe, since it's not eternal and since it could not have created itself, it had to be created by someone greater than it. On the slide, I've invited you to notice, the Bible quickly tells us who the one greater than it is. It's God. In Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. The Bible identifies then logically who is that one. Now you'll notice this is a line of reasoning that points us to the character of the Creator the one who brought it into existence. There is a God. In addition to that Exodus passage in Colossians 1.16, there speaking about the second member of the Godhead, Jesus the Christ. It is there said of Him that He created all things, be they thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. He created all of them. One more time, the Bible identifies the earth didn't create itself. The universe did not create itself. It was brought into being by one greater than it. Hebrews 11 verse 3 will state it this way. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now we've referred to the Word of God for at least those passages in Scripture, but notice, logically, we reach the conclusion there had to be something. There had to be a being that brought this universe into existence. Science has offered no thought as to who or what it may have been. The Bible does tell us. As you close that slide with me, wouldn't it be fair to say the universe is an amazing effect? And the law of cause and effect does then dictate there had to be a cause. The cause was God. Genesis 1 verse 1 still says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9 summarize it like this. As one makes reference to the word of the Lord, the inspired psalmist would say, He spoke it and it happened. Now this opening line of consideration, the law of cause and effect, maybe is tied somewhat to this one. The issue that might well be described under the heading of design. Those who discuss this probably use a slightly different word admittedly, and so I included it at the top. Teleology. Now that's just a fancy word that means purpose or design. So let's think for a few minutes at least about design. 
at the top, I've at least stated what I think is obvious. If you and I come across a poem, there had to be a poet. Poems don't write themselves. They don't just appear out of the blue. If you come across law, there had to be a lawgiver. Laws don't make themselves. If you come across a painting, there had to be a painter. A painting just doesn't happen accidentally. A tornado will not come through and make for us a Van Gogh painting. It just doesn't happen that way. Where there's a painting, there's a painter. Does it not then follow that if we encounter design, one would expect there to be a designer? An intelligence sufficient to put in place the orderliness and the design which you and I thus observe. On that slide, I've thus invited you to notice that principle, by the way, is a strong part of the Word of God. Let's apply it to the cosmos. Let's apply it to the, to the entirety of the existence around us. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. That word handiwork involves putting into place organized and orchestrated activity. When one gives thought to the solar system and to the heavens, is there orderliness? The planets revolve around the sun in a wonderful fixed arrangement. The planets don't collide into each other. They don't bounce off each other like balls on a pool table. There's orderliness, and it's impressive. There is stability that is utterly astounding. Sometimes when human beings create or concoct something, it may last for a while, but it, it decays, it deteriorates. The solar system has been stable. The earth revolves around the sun. It does so in this time period that seems wonderfully consistent. Not only that, at this point you might again appreciate that there are a number of additional features that might especially be mentioned in regard to earth. Now I've singled out earth for the following reason. Astronomers, as they have turned their telescopes to various places in the heavens, nothing has been found even remotely close to earth. Nothing like it. Would you give thought to earth, would you in fact think of it like this? And may I be quick to say that many scientists through the ages have at least been willing to say, it almost appears as if a designer had earth in mind when he put all of the features in place relative to it. The earth is just the right distance from the sun. All three phases of water exist, ice, steam, and water. They coexist naturally in the, in the consideration of temperatures that we have available. If the earth were much closer to the sun at all than what it is, the temperatures on the planet would be so high that the entirety of the climate in all of its particulars would change. And we soon would not even be here. May I ask you to think about the planet Venus, which is closer to the sun than we are. Venus has an atmosphere that is filled with carbon dioxide. It is unlivable. 
You could not live on Venus. But not only that, the pressure is so high that you and I would be crushed to death, even if we could somehow descend to the surface of Venus. Not only matters like pressure. Look at the other features related to the radiation. If we were much closer to the sun, the radiation from the sun would be very damaging to life. If we were much further from the sun, the temperature would be so cold that again, things would not be comfortable and favorable. I say all of that to say this. Earth revolves around the sun once every 365.25 days. If you were to look at the trick, the path, the curve that earth follows in that motion, it deviates by one-ninth of an inch for every 18 miles. If it deviated by one-eighth, we would spiral away from the sun. Region would be too cold. Life as we know it wouldn't be here. If it were one-tenth, we would spiral into the sun. It would be too close. Again, things would not be good. I simply offer you this thought. The organization of the laws of gravity and science that are in place have put it in place like this. That's orderliness. That's design. Design didn't just come by itself. You cannot light a bunch of dynamite under a pile of sticks and think it'll construct you a house. Explosions do not work this way. Where there's this kind of design, we would anticipate a grand intelligence put it in place. Now, science would say that somehow all of this came about by itself. Sheer nonsense. The grand designer called God put it together. Now, I might say I've saved in many ways the grander consideration to come up next. One can think about the universe and spend a lifetime reflecting on these physical inanimate matters. But I would say if when you and I look in a mirror, we have come across perhaps the grandest evidence for God's existence. Think about the human being for just a minute. What God has put in place relative to the human being boggles the mind. Needless to say, in just a couple of minutes, we can't do full justice to a topic like this one, but I have asked you to think about this. The human body consists of trillions of cells. And those cells are like incredible factories carrying out their labors and works as necessary. And those cells have a function. Cells in the heart act differently than cells in the lungs. And they act differently than cells in the brain. Every one of them carries out its function in a wonderful, tireless way. May I ask, how did the cell know what it's supposed to do? Isn't that a good question? May I say, I've at least highlighted it on the slide. There is a system that God has put in place a system in which incredible information is shared forth from basically the matter of procreation onward. And as the cells develop, as the cells divide, as the particular issues in the body then mature and grow, those cells carry out their duties. DNA 
is the particular thing inside the, the nucleus of the cell that tells it what to do. The amount of information content in the DNA of one cell of your body, one, is enough to feel, as you could see on that slide, untold numbers of miles of bookshelves in a library. And that's in one cell of your body. The human family has not come close yet to learning how to store information that concisely, how to store it that incredibly. And yet the body seems to do it by way of a grand design. Who designed it? It's sure asking a lot to think that that just happened. What about the brain? The human brain is by far the most complicated, complex system that the human being has ever encountered. Even the universe doesn't come close to it. In fact, there are 10 billion neurons in your brain. That's just connections that can be made. And each one of those neurons has a thousand different links. If you were to try to, in fact, put books in a library representative of that amount of knowledge and connection, it would take 500 miles of library shelves. And it just happened? I do not think so. We would anticipate then a designer, a sophisticated designer, to put something like that in place. There is God. God did it. Now who knows if the human family will ever learn to store information that concisely. I don't know. We certainly aren't close at this point. You and I know about computers, and there are hard drives on computers, and we can store terabytes of information. The brain has orders of magnitude more information than that. Stored in a far less space. Surely we aren't expected to believe that just happened. Not only can one think about design, I would mention to you about various organs in the body like the eye. Those who subscribe to evolution have found the human eye as one of the most incredible things that they cannot deal with. How did the eye evolve, according to them? You, you need a retina, you need an optic nerve, you need the other particulars that lead to the optics of the eye. How could it all have evolved at the same time? Yet they say it did. Proverbs 20 verse 12 says, God made the eye. God made the ear. He gave the faculties and the facilities by which those things work, and aren't we thankfully did? So far, we've looked at two particular ideas of evidence. The design that we see, it cries for a designer that we would recognize as God. Cause and effect demands a designer that we would say is God. What about morality? Even if you lay aside these considerations you and I have noted so far, would you think for just a minute about certain truths, certain understood things about morality? There are certain things that are universally understood to be wrong. Murder is wrong regardless of culture, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of geographical location on the planet. It's always wrong. How did that come to be appreciated this way? Not only that, one can consider lying, stealing, 
adultery. These kinds of things are regarded as inappropriate. They're regarded as wrong. You would suppose then that there's some innateness to the human frame that appreciates that that kind of activity is bad. But where did it come from? If everybody feels this way in all civilizations, it couldn't have just happened. That makes no logical sense. There must be a commonality of understanding whereby that conclusion is related to something deeper than it. One more time, the evolutionist, if you read much of their writing, they struggle at length discussing morality. In fact, you may even on occasion, at least in recent decades, find some who say, well, because they have no basis to assert murder is wrong, maybe it's not wrong. So these folks are now willing to tell us, so you can go out and kill people without penalty. You can take lives of others without cause and there be no ramifications. There have been some who've argued it. Their arguments haven't gone very far. There is something in man that leads to the understanding it's not right to take life that way. It's not right to behave in that fashion. Where did that sense come from? May I point out, all of that would argue for one who implanted in man a sense, a sense, a consideration whereby that is the way things are seen. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, we read this. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God fashioned, He created the human being after His image. Does God value life? Does He value the thing that you and I would call life? Genesis 2, 7 would say, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Zechariah 12, 1 will beautifully say that God forms the spirit of man within him. He is the Father of our spirits, Hebrews 12, verse 9. You see, life emanates from God. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It would be anticipated that He would implant in man a value consistent with the nature of how He regards life. Didn't He say in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, if you take man's life, then by man's hand shall your life be taken. He put in place that issue we would call eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the days of the Old Testament. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, God has a nature of truth. Titus 1 verse 2, He cannot lie. And for that reason, you and I notice that morality doesn't change. 3,000 years ago, they knew murder was wrong. We still know it. Not because legislature in Washington says it, but because it is a part of the human frame. It's the way God has made us. These lines of evidence we've considered today, be it matters of cause and effect, be it issues of design, be it matters touching the whole existence of morality, why is something seen as wrong universally? It had to be because... God put it in place that way. 
As we come near the close of our lesson this morning, our attempt has just been to think of some reasons whereby we could reach a conclusion about the existence of God. A few moments ago, the lesson text from Habakkuk 2 verse 20 read like this, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Our job is not to question God. It's not to question whether He exists or not. The evidence is plain, absolutely plain. So plain that may I suggest we consider as the closing verse of the day, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, The invisible things of Him, that's God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse for not believing in God. There is no excuse for making the claim that I'm a skeptic, or I'm an agnostic, or that I'm an atheist. The evidence is all around us. Be it cause and effect, be it morality, be it design, or yea, many other possible considerations, God exists. And because of that, it is our duty to learn of Him, to obey Him, to please Him, because if He is powerful enough to create this universe, and you and me, and all the other things that are a part of our existence, then we should appreciate He's powerful enough to govern after life. And to have a place of abode, sweet called heaven, another very much unsweet called hell. What about your life and mine today? If you've never submitted to the greatness of the power of God and honored and acknowledged His existence, today's the day to begin. He sent His Son that you might be saved from sin. Today, if we could be of some help in that way, would you take note of the fact that He demands? Believe in Jesus, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. That's what the New Testament teaches we must do. But once you become a Christian, live faithfully, defending His Word, believing in the Lord, having full confidence that God exists and that we are sheep of His pasture, Psalm 100, verse 3. Today, if you are a wayward child of God, one who at one time was an ardent follower of the God of heaven, but perhaps of late you are not, maybe you've been swayed by the thinking of some that's begun to cause you to question certain truths. Be reaffirmed. The Bible is His Word. He does exist. And there's coming a day when every one of us will stand in judgment before Him. Are you ready for that day? Am I? As a wayward child of God, you need to repent of your sins and confess them and rush back in faith to the wonderful side of the Master. Today, if we could be of some assistance or help, we'd love to do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.